Hear the word of God from Ezekiel chapter 18. Then another message came to me from the Lord. Why do you quote this proverb concerning the land of Israel? The parents have eaten sour grapes, but the children's mouths pucker at the taste. As surely as I live, says the sovereign Lord, you will not quote this proverb anymore in Israel. For all people are mine to judge, both parents and children alike. And this is my rule. The person who sins is the one who will die. Suppose a certain man is righteous and does what is just and right. He does not feast in the mountains before Israel's idols or worship them. He does not commit adultery. He is a merciful creditor, not keeping items given as security by poor debtors. He does not rob the poor, but instead gives food to the hungry and provides clothes for the needy. He grants loans without interest, stays away from injustice, is honest and fair when judging others, and faithfully obeys my decrees and regulations. Anyone who does these things is just and will surely live, says the Sovereign Lord. But suppose that man has a son who grows up to be a robber or murderer and refuses to do what is right. And that son does all the evil things his father would never do. He worships idols on mountains, commits adultery, oppresses the poor and helpless, steals from debtors by refusing to let them redeem their security, worships idols, commits detestable sins, and lends money at excessive interest. Should such a sinful person live? No, he must die and must take full blame. But suppose that sinful son, in turn, has a son who sees his father's wickedness and decides against that kind of life. This son refuses to worship idols on the mountains and does not commit adultery. He does not exploit the poor, but instead is fair to debtors and does not rob them. He gives food to the hungry and provides clothes for the needy. He helps the poor, does not lend money at interest, and obeys all my regulations and decrees. Such a person will not die because of his father's sins. He will surely live. But the father will die for his many sins, for being cruel, robbing people, and doing what is clearly wrong among his people. What, you ask? Doesn't the child pay for the parent's sins? No. For if the child does what is just and right and keeps my decrees, that child will surely live. The person who sins is the one who will die. The child will not be punished for the parent's sins, and the parent will not be punished for the child's sins. Righteous people will be rewarded for their own righteous behavior, and wicked people will be punished for their own wickedness. But if the wicked people turn away from their sins and begin to obey my decrees and do what is just and right, they will surely live and not die. All their past sins will be forgotten, and they will live because of the righteous things they have done. Do you think that I like to see wicked people die, says the Sovereign Lord? Of course not. I want them to turn from their wicked ways and live. However, if righteous people turn from their righteous behavior and start doing sinful things and act like other sinners, should they be allowed to live? No, of course not. All their righteous acts will be forgotten and they will die for their sins. Yet you say, the Lord isn't doing what's right. Listen to me, O people of Israel. Am I the one that not doing what's right, or is it you? When righteous people turn from their righteous behavior and start doing sinful things, they will die for it. Yes, they will die because of their sinful deeds. And if wicked people turn from their wickedness, obey the law, and do what is just and right, they will save their lives. They will live because they thought it over and decided to turn from their sins. Such people will not die. 
And yet the people of Israel keep saying, the Lord isn't doing what's right. O people of Israel, it is you who are not doing what's right, not I. Therefore, I will judge each of you, O people of Israel, according to your actions, says the sovereign Lord. Repent and turn from your sins. Don't let them destroy you. Put all your rebellion behind you and find yourselves a new heart and a new spirit. For why should you die, O people of Israel? I don't want you to die, says the sovereign Lord. Turn back and live. This is the word of the Lord. Well, good morning again. I love Ezekiel. Fun stuff. This morning, as we're diving into the book of Ezekiel, our text starts off with a proverb that the Israelite people were quoting. And this got me to thinking about everyday proverbs that we say. Proverbs are traditional sayings that are particular to a certain country. They're short, wise sayings that usually offer some kind of advice or capture an idea in life, okay? So who can give me an example of a proverb? Anybody? Strike while the iron is hot. All right, is that an example of a proverb? Anybody else? Is that funny when you can think of them when you try to, but then you're like, oh, there's so many. Early bird gets to worm. That's a good one. Rome wasn't built in a day. Early worm gets to worm. <laughs> I like that. It's no use crying over spilled milk. Anybody else? Do unto others, okay. Mm, close. That's actually what we call an idiom, right? Do you guys know the difference between a proverb and an idiom? An idiom might be uh, a way of describing something, not really a lesson perhaps, but a way of describing something that actually does not make sense in and of itself at all to what you try to compare it to. So for example, it's raining cats and dogs. Doesn't make any sense at all because cats and dogs are not literally raining, but we get what it's trying to say. That's an idiom. So for example, dog eat dog world is an idiom. Yeah, I know. According to my wife, it's a doggy dog world, but dog eat dog world. That's an idiom. How about this one? Curiosity killed the cat. Have heard that one? Don't make a mountain out of a molehill. Right? Proverbs are very interesting. So if you're from another country, proverbs and idioms are two of the most confusing things in the history of the world. But you're like, especially when you're talking to like Americans, there's so many little idioms that people say all the time and they're like, what are you talking about? Like, yo, it's a dog-eat-dog world. They just look at you like, huh? It's a dog-eat-dog world. That doesn't make any sense. It's raining cats and dogs? What? Now, proverbs are meant to teach us something. It's meant to be something that gives us a lesson. And most Proverbs are good bits of wisdom for everyday life. It's, it's, it's wisdom that, that's, that we need to strike while the iron hot, is hot. That's a good bit of wisdom. In other words, it means go when it's the right time to go. Do it when it's the right time to do it. Rome wasn't built in the day. It's a good lesson to show that, hey, not everything's going to happen fast. Take your time. Build. Don't make a mountain out of a molehill. Good bit of wisdom. Don't make little things into huge deals. But what happens when a proverb that is being said leads you astray? 
What happens if the wisdom is actually bad wisdom? And that's what's happening here in, in, our, in our text. Ezekiel is prophesying to the, the people who've been carried into captivity. Remember, Ezekiel was one of the first groups when the city of Jerusalem was conquered that he was taken out into captivity by Babylonian Empire. So he's with the group of people that was taken away, the craftsmen, the, the noble people, the artists, the, the priests were taken away into captivity. He's preaching to them about two key ideas. First, Ezekiel's preaching to them about what is going to happen in Judah and Jerusalem. He's seeing visions of how God has left the temple and his people and how the city and the temple at this point is not destroyed, but it will be destroyed. And second, Ezekiel is preaching to the people to change their hearts so that they're repentant and ready for God when he, when he calls his people to return to the land. And so one of the problems God must address to Ezekiel are the excuses that they're making about their current condition. The Lord begins by quoting what the people are in captivity. These are the ones in the Babylonian exile. That's what they're saying about their circumstances. They're saying the parents eat sour grapes and the children's teeth are set on edge or the children's pucker. So the parents eat sour grapes and the children's teeth are set on edge. The point of the proverb concerning the people is that they think they're being punished for the parents' sin. The parents ate the sour grapes, but we're the ones reaping the punishment. They're acting like they didn't do anything wrong. The people back in the land who had not been exiled were also saying this proverb because this is recorded in Jeremiah 31, 29. They believe that all their troubles are because of the prior generations. Their excuses may come from what God has said about his character throughout scriptures. <clears throat> in Exodus 34, it says this, and he passed in front of Moses proclaiming, the Lord, the Lord, compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands and forgiving wickedness, rebellion, and sin. Yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished. He punishes their children and their children for the sin of their parents to the third and fourth generation. And so this statement about the character of God, they're using to say, oh, are you punishing us for the sins of the previous generation? And so they're understanding God in this false proverb to say, God, my parents ate sour grapes. Why are you giving us the taste in our mouth? My parents are the ones who chose to eat the sour grapes. They're the ones who acted against you. They acted faithlessly. They acted in the poor. They were the wicked ones. Why are we suffering in exile? And God has a two-part answer <clears throat> to the Israelites' questioning. He has a two-part answer to this proverb that they're saying. And after he does that, he illustrates how he actually judges sin. The Lord's first answer is that every life belongs to him. Every life is in the hands of God. It's another way of God to impress upon his people that he's not being judged. They are. I love how it says in the verse, it says that the sons and the, the children, the fathers and the children, they're all mine. They're not different. Every life is his. Now, I love this idea that we have that the Israelites are trying to, almost like they're trying to put God on trial. They're looking at God and saying, God, is it fair? Is it just that you're judging us by what our generations did? And God started off by saying, listen, it's not you to ask me, is it fair? I'm not on trial. You are. And the reality is, just the starting place for us in our culture is we start in the exact same place, don't we? 
We kind of start off in a situation where we're like, God, you're on trial. God, prove to me you're real. God, prove to me that you're good. Prove to me that you're fair. And I'm going to put you on trial. And if I kind of like what you have to say, then maybe I'll listen to you. And God's in heaven. He's saying, no, 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 no. That's not the way this works. I'm creator. I'm just. I'm holy. I'm righteous. I'm beyond. And it's only in my goodness, only in my grace do I allow you to question me. As a matter of fact, I want you to. But know that I'm not the one on trial here. He says, all life is precious. All life is mine, but I also love how it goes in further by this idea is that all life is also precious to him. God's not on trial, but he allows himself to be questioned by each and every one of you and each and every one of us and the Israelites here because all life is precious to him. The Lord's second answer in verse four is that only the person who sins will die. He's choosing to answer this accusation that he doesn't need to answer. But he does it because God is choosing to reveal his character and justice. He says the one who sins will die. God is saying that each person will be judged by who they are and what they do. He's fighting against any sort of fatalistic view of the world that's saying, like father, like son, I'm destined to sin. My parents were sinners. My parents were wicked. My, my family's all wicked. I come from a wicked place amongst the wicked people, so thus I'm determined. That is my fate. I will be wicked and a sin, sinner. And God's saying, that's not the case. You're not trapped by your circumstances. Each person will be judged individually. Now, really quickly, I do want to throw a couple of caveats or thoughts out there. Hear me very clearly. We do reap the repercussions of previous sin and goodness from previous generations. I mean, what I mean by that is that the sins of the father do pass on to the son, but not in the way the Israelites were trying to portray. Blessings and curses have been passed on generationally, but not ultimate judgment. Are you hearing what I'm saying? Does that make sense? I mean, this is pretty obvious in life, right? The sins of my parents, their mistakes have affected me. But so their good decisions and the things they've done right have affected me. It's inevitable and it lasts for generations. But my standing before God is not based on previous generations. I can acknowledge that I may suffer from the repercussions and decisions of poor decisions of, of previous generations and still be viewed as a righteous before God. I can also reap the blessings of previous generations while still being wicked. Do you hear what I'm saying? Does that make sense to you guys? What I'm saying is that reap blessings and curses that we hear about in the Bible, that does pass generationally. And it's obvious, right? We can see how a loving family who, who, who passionate about their kids and walking in right with the Lord can pass on a generational blessing that onto their kids. And I'm not saying that it's materialistic, however you want to define blessing, but I'm saying blessing in means of love and openness and the encouragement that comes from that is, can be passed on, but also so can the abuse and the hurt and the pain of bad decisions. That's inevitable, that's, that's not a question, that's what happens. It occurs, it is passed on, but not your ultimate standing before God. 
That's what God's trying to establish in this point. He's saying, listen, I'm not on trial here. I'm not the one that judges, but I want to let you know that I am seeing, I care about the father and the son. I care about all generations. And each generation, as they're standing before me, will be determined by who they are and what they do, not by what the previous generation has done. Moving on in Ezekiel 18, this next section of scripture from 5 through 24 God is now going to illustrate this truth in a number of ways. The first section, God describes a righteous man who does what is right and just. God says in verse 9, surely that man will live. But then what if he has a violent son who breaks God's laws? He will not live. He's committed all these abominations and he's responsible for his own actions. But God keeps going with this illustration. Now suppose there was a wicked son that himself has a son and sees all the wicked ways of his father does not do follow in his footsteps. That son will not die for his father's sins. He will surely live. The father will die for his sins, but not his son. Then in verse 19 to 20, God sets forward this principle. The person who sins will die. The son does not suffer punishment from God for the, from God for the sins of his father. The father does not suffer punishment for the sins of the son. The righteousness of the, right, of, of the righteous is his own, and the wickedness of the wicked are his own. I love how God just did this. It's so just funny to me. As we were reading, Gina and I looked kind of like laughing as the text was being read. Because like, suppose the righteous guy had a son. He did great, but then his son was evil. And suppose the evil guy did great, evil, but his son was great. And suppose this person had the other kind of son. And he kind of flipped it. I'm like, okay, God, we get your point. You're establishing this fact that it's not about what that person's parents did or what that person's father did. Verses 21 through 24 says, but if a wicked person turns away from all the sins they've committed and keeps my decrees and does what is just and right, that person will surely live. They will not die. None of the offenses they have committed will be remembered against them because of the righteous things they have done, they will live. Do I take pleasure in the death of the wicked, declares the sovereign Lord? Rather, it might not please when they return from the ways and live. My people, I want to share this. I want you to hear this very well. I want you to know something that the sins of your father, the sins of your parents, the sins of your generation are not yours right now. Now, some of you are sitting here and you think you don't seem to understand, Lawrence. My dad was the worst. My dad beat, he beat me and he, he, did, he was terrible to my mom and I see myself doing the same exact things. I feel it in me. Am I my father's son? I can't tell you something. You are not. You are not trapped into this cycle. That's what this scripture, even though it's so funny in the way it worded out, is just trying to express to you. Listen, listen. You are not trapped in that cycle. You are not trapped in that, that rhythm, that, that rotation. That is not who, your reality. God is literally saying to you that you can stop it right now. That's not who you have to be. And for those of you who are thinking, well, my parents were really good, and I grew up really good, and I think I'm good, and I'm, because that's not yours either. Your parents' righteousness does not equate to you being righteous. Your parents' faithfulness does not all of a sudden be like, I inherited my parents' faithfulness, and I'm good to go. That's not your reality either. None of these offenses committed to be married. God is declaring two important truths. Number one, repentance is possible. You're not doomed by your parents' sins. Having wicked parents does not mean that you have to be wicked. Having a wicked family does not mean that you're doomed to punishment. 
God says that you can see their sins and turn away from them. You're not doomed to a life of sin because your parents may maybe set you on that path. You do not have to do what your parents did. You're not doomed to be just like your parents. Guys, we seem to think that this is not true in our society, right? We seem to think that if you had bad parents or you were brought up in a bad environment, that you have no choice but to continue to do evil. But the Lord says here, it's not true. You do not have to replicate your family life. You can turn and have a different direction. You have that choice. You can repent. And I, guys, I love that freedom that God gives to his own people. What joy that it is that we can walk in whatever circumstances you have, whatever circumstances you've been in, no matter how much hurt you've, you've, you've taken upon yourself, no matter how much burden you've had, no matter what's going on, that you can stop. And you can say, I will no longer own what my parents have done. I can repent and I can turn away. There's a TV show that I watched recently with my wife. I'm not gonna say the name of the show because I'm not endorsing the show. So, just wanna say, but in the show, I loved these two main characters had such anger issues and there was this going on back and forth and they were always blaming everybody else. The way their parents raised them. The way their job pressure treated them. The way society or whatever it may be put all this guilt or blame, all this, all this stuff on them, because they're always blaming, it's, it's my parents' fault, it's this fault, and they had this anger there, and I loved at the end of the show, it came down, and it, it, it closed with this idea of like, no more excuses. The excuses are gone. It's my fault. It's my fault. That's where they ended up, these, these two main characters realized when all the excuses were stripped away, when everything else was stripped away, they got to this point where all they had before God, all they had before themselves, all they had in reality was this point where it was all stripped away, and all they could say is, no, I can tr- blame them, I'm a victim all the time, oh, I can blame my parents, I can blame my siblings, I can blame circumstances, I can blame where I grew up, but when they stopped and stripped it all down, they said, no, I'm this way because I am selfish, I'm this way because I am at fault. And the hopeful ending, I hope, in this show, which didn't quite get there, but might get there, is that once that happens, repentance occurs. There's another proverb that goes out there. I don't know if you guys know this one. Excuses are like what? No, anybody ever heard this proverb? Excuses are like belly buttons. Anybody heard that one? No? Excuses are like belly, belly buttons, everybody has one. <laughs> Have you guys not heard that one? Nobody's heard that one? Thank you, one person, one person. Oh, okay. <laughs> I've heard belly buttons, so I don't know what you guys have heard. <laughs> Excuses are like belly buttons, everybody has one. And I love this, this, this passage here, is God looking at us, God speaking to us, hey, you have your excuses, your parents messed you up, you didn't grow up in the right area, all this stuff has happened to you. Can I tell you, everybody has excuses. Strip them all away. Do you choose to turn? Will you repent? Will you walk after what is good and what is right? Do you hear me, people? Second, God explains why it is true that you are not destined to punishment because of your parents. God does not take pleasure in the death of the wicked. Do you have this view of God? 
God does not take pleasure in the death of the wicked. God wants the wicked to turn away from their wicked ways and live. God wants you to have life, not punishment. That's why repentance is possible. Removing the punishment that is due to us is possible. Our great hope is that none of our sins will be remembered if we turn to him. You're not doomed to sin. You're not destined to punishment. Everyone can turn and live. That's ultimately why God sent his son, Jesus, to die upon the cross for us. Jesus fulfilled the law, lived it perfectly, was righteous before God, and by being nature, God himself was able to pay the ultimate price for our sin. He gave himself up in our place and took upon himself the sin of the world so that any one of us can now look to him and be made new. Hear this, God is not a God that's up there being like, I can't wait to punish the wicked. I can't wait to put to death all those who are bad. He's not up there. This scripture is so clear. He literally says he desires not. The scripture is so clear. He says he wants the wicked to turn. And so what does he do? He provides the perfect way. In the perfect time, he provides Jesus so that our sin can no longer be held against us, our sin no longer weighs against us because Jesus took all of it. Guys, don't, don't miss it. I don't know this caricature that you have in your head. I don't know because it's whatever situation, or the way you, you know, the, the books you've read or the, the movies you saw, the stories or your parents, whatever it is, but so many of us have this caricature of God being like a judge. He's stern and he just wants to cast everybody. Oh, you're evil. Go to hell. And that's just this idea that we have. Sometimes this caricature of God in that way. And can I tell you, the scripture is shouting it over again. He is patient. He is kind. He is slow to anger. He desires no one but he, to go to hell, but all of them to turn turn and to know him. He provided Jesus as our way and our means for our sin to be taken completely away from us so that we can be righteous. We can literally say, God, I turn, and in my turning, even though I might not, I can't be good enough, I, I, I don't, but in that turning of, in and of itself, I accept your free gift of life. I love how it says, we will surely die if we were wicked. That's the punishment, that's the weight of sin, death. But it also says here that, but if you turn, you will live. That turning only happens through the work of Jesus. Now people have been saying that God is not fair in this. Ezekiel 18 says, yet you say the way of the Lord is not just. Here you Israelites, is my way unjust? Is not your ways that are unjust? The people have been saying that God is not fair, but God rejects this in verse 25. God is fair. The people are the ones who are unfair. God is just. Guys, and here's, don't we often say this? Don't we often think God isn't fair? Right? Is it fair that there's punishment for sin? Is it fair that the wicked should die? And I love this. God, in this passage of Ezekiel, is patient. It's not like trying to argue back. He literally says, he says, is my way unjust? He's asking. You think it's unfair. Those of you who really think it's unfair, let me just ask you back, is it? Is it unjust or is it not your ways that are unjust? And I love this kind of questioning. I love when somebody will come to me, if my kid will come to me and they say, Dad, it's not fair. Dad, it's not fair. And I, I want to just look at him because most of the time I'll be like, it's fair. Get out of here. How dare you question me? 
But I love it. God just looks back, and for me, he's looking back at my kid and saying, Hudson, is it, is it not fair? Or are you not being fair? Because here's what happens when that question is turned back around. Here's what happens when that question is, is given back to you, is that you stop and you really look and think, I'm like, okay, what, are, what am I saying so unfair? What am I saying so unfair? God is literally saying that each person will be judged by their own actions and their deeds. God is literally establishing what that looks like. God is establishing a way to live in this system. God is establishing a way that he's creator and he's providing such goodness for us and he's called us just to be faithful to him. God has established all this. Is it unfair then? Is it unfair that you don't reap the benefits without following after him? And I just love it because when you stop and look at it, we look and we evaluate this idea and we have this hard time with punishment. So much so, we have this hard time with punishment, but we realize that without punishment, there is no justice. And every one of us craves justice, don't we? Everyone wants to believe that one day the oppressed will be free that one day the abusers will be punished. One day all that is meant to be right and good will succeed, and one day when all that is wrong and evil will be put in its proper place. We want to believe there's a system of justice. We want to believe there is righteousness. We want and we crave that. And so when I look at my son, he says it's not fair, and I'm saying, son, is it not? Can you look at this and can you evaluate this and see that you need me as a parent? He doesn't really get to this realization. I'm just I'm not saying that he got there. I'm just saying. My son needs me to be just as a family. Otherwise, our family will struggle. Otherwise, him and his brother are going to get in a million fights. Otherwise, we don't have a leg to stand on when we call them to, to right action. He says, you'll be judged for your actions, therefore repent. Repent. As long as we blame everyone else for our sins, we will never repent. If we blame our parents, we will never repent. If we blame our friends, we won't repent. If we blame our culture, we will not repent. If we see ourselves as completely innocent, excusing our sins because of what others did, then we will never turn and have life. So God underscores this important truth, our excuses are useless. Everyone will be judged according to their ways. So repent. And what does repentance look like? It's first acknowledging your need. Acknowledging what you are and who you are and what you've done. And then casting away all the sins that you've committed. God gave us the means to that. He showed us first what is righteous, what is good, what is beautiful, what is right to live by. He gave us the right example so that anything that's not comparable to that, we cast away. We turn from our evil ways and seek after God. And it says here that God instructs his people to get a new heart and a new spirit. And I love that. It's this idea of a new heart and a new spirit. Guys, do you understand that Ezekiel is starting the idea of this new covenant here? In Ezekiel 37, later on, it actually says you need a new heart. The way you get a new heart is only through the work of Jesus Christ in the new covenant. His the idea of this new heart spirit only comes through the fact that you, me, you, every one of us needs a heart transplant. And what God does through the work of Jesus is gives you a new heart to know him, to follow hard after him, to love him well, and to love others well. 
So we turn, we acknowledge our state, we turn to cast away our sin, and we ask God for a new heart and a new spirit to follow hard after him. And that only happens through the work of Jesus. Our new way of thinking includes some truths. And here's the truths that include. First, every life belongs to the Lord. We're all accountable to him because he made us and because he's ruler God. Second, we do not bear the punishment of our parents or anyone else. Third, we're not destined to sin and punishment. We're able to change the direction of our lives. Fourth, God is just. We are the problem. God is not the problem. Stop making excuses for your sin. And finally, God does not desire the wicked to perish. He gives opportunities for us to turn before judgment comes. He will not judge you for your past if you will turn to him today. My people, here is the beauty of the gospel message. Is every one of us has baggage. Every one of us has our issues. Every one of us has generational stuff that come upon us. You guys could have had the best parents in the history of the world, and you still have issues. Am I right? But here's what we get to say. That in the midst of our issues, in the midst of all the baggage that we have, in the midst of all that we've done bad, all that we've done good, all that we have, we can say at this point, in this time, that God is calling us to repent and to turn to him. And he's judging us by what we say, what we do, and what we, what we are now. And the beautiful news is, is that not a single one of us have to say that, oh, look how good I am to show how good I am before God. Every one of us gets to say, look at Jesus. His righteousness is mine because he chose to die upon the cross for me. So our confidence doesn't exist because, hey, look how good I am. I've repented fully and I'm walking perfectly in righteousness. I worship, I don't worship at mountains. Do you guys know what that is? I'm just using that example because it's from the text. Basically, I don't worship false gods. I've charged people interest for loans before. See, I've, I've, I've broken all these things that it talks about here. But I have Jesus. And so when God looks at me, my righteousness comes from him alone. And that's the beauty of the gospel is when we accept Jesus in our place, his, sin, his righteousness is now our righteousness. And we get to live in that. So my people, may we know these truths out of Ezekiel. May you know that you know bound and enslaved to the sins of your, of your fathers. May you know that you're being judged by your actions now and ultimately your action and decision to choose and follow Jesus. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for such incredible love. God, that the love that says that you seek no one to perish, but you want us to turn and to know you. God, the love that says that we can be known and loved by you through the work of Jesus. So we thank you for that kind of love. May we turn and repent. May we not follow after the way the Israelites did. God, may we not take exile that needs it to happen, but may we now today choose to know you and follow hard after you. God, we thank you. And we love you. And we thank you that today, this moment, and this time, we get to celebrate the joy of baptism together. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.